All right, death lesson number seven, the resurrection of the dead, part three. So this is our third lesson on the resurrection of the dead, and then this is the nature and timing of the resurrection. We've already ascertained that the resurrection of the dead is a very key doctrine. It is not up for discussion. It is not a debatable. It's non-negotiable. This is one of the principal doctrines of Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And so we've covered that in the previous two lessons. Let's look at this. Now that we've clearly seen how established and foundational the resurrection of the dead is, let us further explore what this event will look like, what the nature of the new body will be, and that's what we all have coming for us, praise God, and when this event will take place. I have to tell you, I've probably labored and toiled over this lesson more than any I've ever written because there's so much in the Word on this, and it's hardly ever taught anymore. And so when you jump into a doctrine for the first time that is as established as this, it takes some time to kind of dredge, dredge the Scriptures, for lack of a better term, and then make heads or tails of what you pull up. So this lesson here has probably been five or six weeks in the works. Uh, of endeavor to be as accurate as possible, but it doesn't mean that maybe in six months I don't come back and tweak a few things. I have studied the theologians on this to see what they had to say. So let's look at this. The New Testament clearly reveals that the resurrection of the dead occurs at the rapture. That's what we're going to prove in this next little part. The Bible very clearly proves that the resurrection of the dead occurs at the rapture. Well, now, we covered the resurrection of the dead the last two classes, so we don't have time to re review that. But what we're going to see here is that the rapture and the resurrection of the dead are the same event. Anyone questioning the validity of the rapture or denying it outright, as some Christians do and some denominations do totally reject the rapture, they must carefully reconcile this with their belief in the resurrection of the dead because the two are indistinguishable. Remember, the resurrection of the dead is a non-negotiable doctrine. It is a principal doctrine of Christ. As we are about to see, the rapture and the resurrection of the dead are the same event. So look, we have two scriptures here, the two very famous passages concerning the rapture. Let's look at them more closely. Then I've built a little chart that shows you the comparisons to show they're talking about the same event. And this is critical because we have to answer when does the resurrection of the dead take place. So 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 and 52 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. So a mystery, that's the Greek word mysterion, where we actually transliterate the word mystery or mysterious from, uh, the unspoken thing. Paul says, I show you a mystery. It's been hidden for a long time. What is the mystery, Paul? We shall not all sleep. We've previously covered that that is a Bible um, Hebraism for death. We shall not all physically die, but we shall all be changed. That's referring to the resurrection, the glorified body. In a moment, in, a, in the twinkling of an eye, that's the Greek word atomos, where we get our word Adam from, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, that is the resurrection of the dead, and we shall be changed. Everybody's going to be changed. We all understand that is the resurrection of the dead. That is the reception of the glorified body. But here the emphasis is the body's being changed. The body's being changed. The trumpet sounds and the bodies are changed. They're raised up incorruptible. The bodies are changed. That's the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 15 in this passage. Now look at 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we're already establishing now we're about to talk about the resurrection of the dead, even so them also which sleep or have died in their body, sleep in Jesus will God bring with him, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So this is prophecy. 
that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So now we're talking about those that are alive and those that are dead in their bodies because to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. The only thing sleeping is the body. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's the reference to the resurrection of the dead. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This passage does not emphasize a changed body. It emphasizes being caught up to be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 emphasizes a changed body. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So they're both talking about the same event, but one is emphasizing the changing of our body. The other is emphasizing our, our joining or our communion or our coming together with the Lord Jesus. These two passages are discussing the same event, but they reveal different details. So look at this chart I've built here. 1 Corinthians 15 is contrasted with 1 Thessalonians 4. We shall not all sleep is just like what Thessalonians says, we which are alive and remain. Not sleeping is the same as being alive and remaining faithful. We should add that where it says we, uh, we which are alive and remain, when the Lord comes, there will be a lot of people alive, but they won't all remain faithful to Jesus. So the fact that Paul makes a distinction, he doesn't just say alive, because there's going to be a lot of people alive on planet Earth. There'll be a lot of Christians alive on planet Earth, but the inference for the word remain is you have remained faithful to Jesus. You have endured to the end. You have been an overcomer. Upon those overcome, he says, uh, the second death will have no influence, no touch, no curse. There's going to be a lot of Christians alive when the Lord comes, but they will have not remained faithful to Jesus. Don't let that be you or anybody in your family. Amen. So we see the comparison there. It's the same thing. Next point, 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last trump or the trumpet shall sound. 1 Thessalonians talks about the trump of God that has nothing to do with the current politician. No matter what some folks from Bob Jones University says, the guy in the White House is not the trump of God. He is an elected official who needs much prayer. You wouldn't believe how many Christians have said he's the trump of God. And I think y'all are ignorant. No better word to describe than ignorant. Trump of God. No, he's the Trump of half of the nation who voted for him. <laughs> I'm sure God wishes he would be my Trump, but it's not going to be the trumpet of God. So we see there, next point, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Thessalonians 4 says the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we shall all be changed. And then 1 Thessalonians says, we shall be caught up together with them. So I want you to see the parallels in these two passages, though they are um, emphasizing different aspects of the same event. 1 Corinthians 15 is emphasizing the glorified body, the resurrection body, the bodies of those who are alive and remain being transformed. 1 Thessalonians does not emphasize the resurrection aspect of the rapture, but emphasizes our being with him. That's the two emphasis, but it's the same event. And I, I built this to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection of the dead and the rapture are the same event and you can't believe in one and deny the other as some do. And you need to know that. The Corinthian passage emphasizes the resurrection aspect of the rapture while the Thessalonian passage emphasizes our final union with Jesus. But make, make no mistake about it, these two events are the same. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, this is kind of like a bonus verse here. 1 and 2, this is another passage about the rapture. Now we beseech you, brethren, by 
the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. There's another famous passage on the rapture. The Lord is coming and we're being gathered to him. The Lord is coming and we are being gathered to him. That you be, so, that, uh, you be not soon shaken in mind or, by, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now I threw that one in there as well because the rapture and the resurrection of the dead is referred to as the day of Christ. Here is one more witness from scripture that we are gathered to the Lord when he comes again. Our gathering to him results in the ultimate transformation. And as we said before, the rapture or the resurrection of the dead, that is the final stage of our salvation. Jesus Christ died to redeem us spirit, soul, and body. Our body has not been redeemed yet. That is the hope we're expecting. He has died to redeem us, spirit, soul, and body, and the resurrection of the dead is the culmination or the, the final installment of our salvation. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit that one day this body will be redeemed as well. Uh, we said, I think last week, we don't have a mindset like the early believers who were so desperate for a new body, even as uh, Romans talks about we long to be clothed with our eternal home. Most Christians don't think that way, but suddenly we do. We're always trying to improve this body. We're always trying to nip this and tuck that and lose this and gain that and stretch this and not stretch that. We want this thing to endure and look for good forever. That is built within you, the desire for a glorified body, an eternal home in the heavens, an eternal body. And unfortunately, that's a passage I've not been able to incorporate yet into these uh, teachings. The rapture, resurrection of the dead is also referred to as the day of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus, and the day of Jesus Christ. This is different from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, refers to when the heavens and earth melt away and everything is melted under the heat of God's presence. That is at the end of the millennial reign. So you need to make a distinction between the day of the Lord, which is spoken of over and over and over again in the Old Testament, which is a day of wrath and vengeance, and what Paul calls the day of the Lord, or many times it's called that day. It's all referring to the rapture slash resurrection of the dead. And you have to make a doctrinal distinction so that when you're reading this, you go, oh. We also have to keep in mind that Paul wrote these letters to churches he pioneered. And so they understood his lingo, though we might have to really search hard to interpret. Be like me teaching you guys for five years, moving away, then writing you a letter and that letter understands our, our lingo, if you will, and what I've taught you. And in one sentence, I can regurgitate or call to your remembrance six months of teaching. Like Paul would say, don't forget how when I was with you, I mentioned this. Well, how long was he with them for? Three years. Well, how much teaching did they get from Paul in three years that he recalls with one sentence in one epistle? So this is why we study. This is why you can't afford to be a shallow Christian who does nothing but a 10-minute Bible study in the morning as a devotional. We have so much to learn. I don't understand how Christians can go to church once a week and think they're right with God. And I really don't understand how some Christians cannot study the Bible and think they're right with God. I'm about to tighten us up as a church. I think you ought to be in your Bible every day studying it, not just reading two scriptures, meditating on it for five minutes before you fall asleep. But even ladies who are technically not that good at Bible study because they're better at prayer, women need to be in the Bible too. There's a reason you don't see hardly any Bible, female Bible teachers. 
When you look at the landscape of ministers, they're mostly men because you have to know the Bible to teach it. And I can think of maybe four or five female ministers on the national stage. Where's the rest of the women who could be good Bible teachers? But I'm not trying to be sexist. Women are more given to prayer than they are Bible study. But you have the same intellect I do. You have the same brain I have. You have the same Holy Spirit I do. You have the same Bible I have. But you have to give yourself over to Bible study if you're going to know your God. Consequently or inversely, men aren't very good at prayer. But they are good at Bible study. And if you're male and female and you don't do both, you're way backslid. And you're ruining your life. And there's no other simple way to put it than that. Amen. All right, let's move on. So the resurrection of the dead is referred to as the day of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus, and the day of Jesus Christ. This is different from the day of the Lord. That has to do with wrath and vengeance and the end of the millennial when everything is just wiped clean. Satan is dealt with forever, a new heaven and a new earth. That is the day of the Lord. Uh, and also many other places it's called that day. The Lord has a reward for me and only me, but others in that day, talking about the resurrection of the dead etc. The first resurrection. All right, let's keep advancing this topic. The first resurrection. Now that we've established that the resurrection and the rapture are the same event, and hopefully you're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can look at the other raptures and resurrections in the New Testament. Notice that there are only two resurrections or raptures in the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah. The difference is, though they were raptured, their body was not resurrected. They were taken, and they were not, for God took them. Uh, Elijah went up in a whirlwind, and they were found no more, but they were not resurrected because they were not given a body yet, a new body. So this is a different thing than the resurrection. They were raptured, yes. They were caught up, yes, but also to bend your mind. But even when they were caught up by God, they were sent to hell. Because hell, if you've been following all of our teachings, hell or Sheol is the place of the departed, and everybody before Jesus Christ went to hell. But there were two compartments in hell. This is why you should go back and listen to the other six lessons, because we discussed this and proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus went to hell and preached to the saints in prison. Everybody, including Jesus, went to hell. Now Abraham's bosom paradise is in heaven. Even Enoch, Elijah, raptured up but sent to hell. Just go preach that without any understanding. You'll trip people's mind. They'll call you a heretic. It's because they're ignorant and don't study their Bible. Everybody before Jesus Christ went to the place of the departed because before the resurrection, nobody could go to heaven because you weren't redeemed yet because the blood of bulls and goats can't redeem nothing. Amen. Okay. This is why we don't do purple lights, smoke machines, or coffee makers in this church because the church in America drools on themselves when it comes to doctrine. I mean, I mean it's, to me, this stuff is so simple in the scriptures, but people say, what strange thing is this? Well, it's not Facebook. That's why it's strange to you. It's not Netflix. That's why it's strange to you. It's not sinful, carnal, or reprobate. That's why it's strange to you. Not you, but the church in general. All right. Curiously, the Bible assigns the term the first resurrection to describe the catching away of the New Testament saints. This appears to happen in stages. John saw the culmination of the resurrection in heaven. Let me read that again because we just, you're probably not still hung up on something else I just said. The Bible assigns the term the first resurrection to describe the catching away of the New Testament saints. Now, if there's a first resurrection, then there has to be another resurrection. 
The first resurrection, which we'd also call the raptures, happens in stages. And John sees this in the revelation in heaven. John, uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, 5, and 6. I've split the translations to help elucidate the Greek there. John said, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And what else did I see? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. What else did I see? And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their, uh, on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what's the they refer to? The three categories of people he sees. They. Thrones, and I call them enthroned judges. I see those beheaded. I see those who weren't beheaded but never denied Christ during the tribulation. But the rest, I see, and they came to life, that's the resurrection, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is a passage that builds our doctrine of the millennial reign of Christ and us ruling and reigning with them. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. There's your second resurrection. The rest of the dead. Who's the rest of the dead? The wicked dead. They don't live again until the thousand-year reign is done. Blessed and holy, excuse me, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You see this reference of a thousand years over and over again. This is the millennial. Why do we call it the millennial? Not because it's the young people who can't function in life. That's a, a millennial. This is the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. If we call it the millennial reign of Christ because a millennial is a thousand years or a millennium is a thousand years. But we see that those who are in heaven, when John sees them, they get to come alive again. That means they receive a glorified body, and then they go and rule and reign with Christ on earth. But we see three categories of believers. Those who have been given th thrones in heaven that are judging, those who are beheaded, because that's one category of saint we're never going to be, and then those who endured the tribulation, who never denied Christ, but escaped the martyrdom. And so this passage discusses three categories of people that I just explained. Enthroned judges, probably the church raptured. If you compare that to Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, you see the exact same lingo. To those that overcome, they will sit with me in my throne. Another place, to those that overcome, I shall give them power to rule the nations. And they'll judge them with the rod of iron. But that's only if you overcome. And he said that to churches. That means born-again ones, the, the seven churches of the apocalypse, to those that overcome implies directly that some will not overcome. I don't know of a single pastor who thinks every person in his church is overcoming. You have to decide that you will be one of those that overcomes. And the, the darker the day gets, the harder you're going to have to fight to overcome. You've got to stay five steps ahead of the last days. The, your Christianity of last year does not cut it today. You've got to fight and scrap even more fervently because your enemy is also ramping up his techniques. And as you learn a skill set, he sees that you've learned it. He's going to change his tactics, and you've got to stay ahead of him. We covered last Sunday night. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. And you've got to wrestle with everything you got. Amen. In throne judges, we see beheaded saints. These were saints martyred during the tribulation. And then we see a third category, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. These are saints who had escaped the martyrdom 
during the tribulation. So they somehow end up in heaven. We see enthroned judges, how they get there. Had to be the rapture. We see beheaded saints, how they get there. They had their head cut off. And then we see those who endured the tribulation, who never denied Christ, yet were never martyred. How do they get there? Every theologian agrees they had to be raptured up there. And then they get to live again. Well, they're alive because they're in the presence of God. So what lives again? Their body, their glorified body. Here we see the culmination or the reference again to the resurrection of the dead. They're given a new body, which also says the rest live not again for a thousand years. That's the second resurrection, which helps us build the understanding that even the wicked damned, when they're raised up before God, they are given a new body. How else can the Bible say the rest live not again? Well, they're alive. They're in hell. What's going to live again? Their body. Now, I've never heard this taught, to be perfectly honest with you, but it, it's just logically it makes sense. It's, it's a hermeneutic. You cannot have a resurrection without a body being resurrected. We'll explain this, and I think you'll go, oh, that makes such perfect sense. And if you find anything that contradicts me, bring it to me. We'll study it. Because I've searched everything. I find nothing. This trifold group of saints, enthroned judges, tribulation martyrs, and tribulation endurers, and I'm just making these terms up, is all partakers of the first resurrection. Those who are partakers of the first resurrection will not be hurt of the second death, another promise to the seven churches of the apocalypse, and will reign with Christ during the millennium. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. The revelation places the first resurrection before the millennial reign of Christ. All those resurrected with those glorified bodies get to rule and reign for a thousand years. And during that thousand years, though this is not part of the resurrection of the dead, but during that thousand years, there will still be human beings in natural bodies having children populating the earth. It will have to be repopulated because the battle of Armageddon will wipe out almost everything. You have a 250 million man army that Christ dissolves with the sword of his mouth. You just wiped out a whole bunch of men. Children are going to starve to death. Women will starve to death. It'll be brutal. You might call it a, a, uh, a planet extinction event. There'll be a lot to repopulate, kind of like after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. And almost, almost for that season, there might be more of the saints ruling than there are humans inhabiting. But for a thousand years, you can repopulate pretty, pretty, uh, pretty plenty. And to do it under the rule of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who knows what civilization will look like, what technology will exist. To think about there'll be angels, glorified Christians, and human beings cohabitating the earth under the rule of Jesus Christ, the King. We can't even wrap our mind around it because that's like the Old Testament trying to look into the church age going, I can see glimmers, I can see, but how do I even put words to it? That's where we stand today, trying to wrap our church age mind around the millennial reign where Jesus is enthroned on the throne of David. David rules over Jerusalem, Jesus rules over the world. We rule the nations for him in glorified bodies. Mankind is still populating the earth through natural means. We're like the angels, we don't marry or have children in the, in the millennial or the resurrection. And yet angels are still, still here too, and there's no devil. No Satan, no, no demonic forces, just peace for a thousand years. And the mind of Christ in the earth, developing technology, infrastructure, making the most use of the earth that God created. Again, 
try to stretch it. You're going to throw a little bit of your science fiction background, your little of Disney World imagination. You're going to throw a little bit of Saturday morning cartoons, and you still won't even touch it. You'll be like the angels trying to look into salvation or the Old Testament prophets looking into uh, the church age. We just can only barely catch a glimmer of it, which is why it's still called a mystery to us. But that's okay. We still haven't unlocked all the mysteries given to us in Christ. We're still trying to get Christians to come to church more than twice a month. Amen. All right. Christ's resurrection and the Passover saints. I misquoted this or mistaught this a few weeks ago, so scratch it. We'll take it out of the CD when we edit it because I had misread it. It's so subtle. I just steamrolled ahead of it, having not refreshed my studies. Matthew 27, 50 through 53 says this. Jesus, when he had cried again on the cross with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain or torn in half from top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent or they were broken. And the graves were opened, semicolon. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after, after his resurrection. Now, a couple weeks ago, I mistaught that and I said they came out at his death or before his resurrection, which even when I said it, I thought, that's trippy. I even said that to you guys, that's trippy. But it says there, after his resurrection. So there's a fine sequence that you can't just read through and catch. An earthquake opens the graves. These were all stone graves. So you can imagine an earthquake causing um, gravestone doors to fall open. You know, the earthquake is breaking everything. Tombs are breaking open, but nothing happens until after the resurrection. Otherwise, they're resurrected on the inside. Hey, let me out, let me out, let me out. <laughs> they had a glorified body, I believe, so maybe they could have passed through it. But it's interesting, the graves came open and they were resurrected after his resurrection. Semicolon, to me, that says there's a time gap. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose, that's raised up, resurrected, and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. There is a resurrection that is part of the first fruits of Christ's resurrection. We covered this, I think, last week or two weeks ago. Jesus is called the first fruits raised from the dead. First fruits is an agricultural term. When you plant or sow a field, most of us know this, some fruit comes up early. You have a couple ears of corn that come up early, a couple tomatoes that come up early. That's the first fruit. The rest of the harvest lags behind a little bit. So Jesus and these saints are the first fruits of the resurrection. They just happen to come up about 2,000 years early. The rest of us are still waiting for our harvest of soul, or excuse me, our harvest of bodies. Matthew presents us with two resurrections here, Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of a group of deceased saints I will call the Passover saints. Why? Because they were raised up from the dead on the Passover. No doubt the great earthquake caused the graves to open up, but the bodies were not resurrected until after the Lord's resurrection. It is unfathomable to consider that these saints could be resurrected before Jesus Christ was. The resurrected Passover saints preached unto many, and I add this, we must presume, this is conjecture, we must presume, though, that they were raptured up with the Lord in Acts 1, 9, and 10, because they're not here today, and Paul doesn't mention them, Peter never mentions them, John never mentions them, only Matthew, and then they're gone. It may be that they were the cloud that received Jesus in the air, because the Bible says, and a great glory cloud received him. But Hebrews 12 says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Now the Greek word witness is martyr. 
The word martyr has evolved for us to mean someone who dies for their faith, but the original means someone who saw and had evidence. So Jesus is received into a cloud. It may be that these were the resurrected saints who were kind of sucked up first, if you will, and then the Lord Jesus. Because the angel says, as you see him go, that's how he's going to come. How's he going? Well, how's he coming? With a bunch of his saints. So maybe how did he go? With a bunch of his saints. That gets to be a little bit of conjecture, but it fits, and you can't disprove it. Plus, you've never studied any of this anyway, so just let me be the expert. And if you disagree, email me, text me, and give me five scriptures, or at least one that throws a monkey wrench in what I'm spinning here, or cogging out, you know, throw it in my cogs and stop my progress. The nature of our resurrected bodies, to me, this is the best part of the study, because this is coming for all of us, and I have admitted almost every lesson, it is weird to think we believe in a body that's going to come after this body. And it's going to be better than this. We are the only religion in the world that believes that we have to have a body for eternity. Every other religion believes in the eternal, but they believe in the body dying and being dead forever. Christianity says God gave you a body. That's what he wants you to have. But after this, he's going to give you an upgrade because this ain't cutting it. Because it is the will of God you have a body. If Christ has a body for eternity, well, we are his body. Why would we not get the same thing, a glorified body? Since the resurrection of the dead has not yet occurred, we can only speculate from what the scriptures foretell and what Christ's glorified body was like. Let us first consider exactly what the Bible says will happen to our old bodies. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been planted together, that's like seed in agriculture. If we've been planted together in the likeness, likeness is a critical word. It means such as amounts almost to equality or almost to identity. If we have been planted together almost in equality and almost in identity to his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Our resurrection will be almost in equal to his and almost in identity to his. That's what the Greek word says. We should be able to safely assume that if Christ was the first fruits of them that slept, and if we have been planted like a seed awaiting a future harvest in the likeness of his death, then when Paul says we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, it implies that our glorified body will, almost, will also be almost equal to and almost identical to Christ's glorified body. I have never read a theologian, even a conservative one, that would disagree with that statement. I was raised Southern Baptist. Boy, they preach a glorified body. Just almost, they say almost like Jesus because we're not the Christ. We get that. But that's exciting. <laughs> Upgrade. Yet we understand that because we're always trying to upgrade this right now. There's nothing wrong with that. Take care of it. Uh, there's so much that we don't even understand yet. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. I'm, I'm, as I'm teaching, all these other scriptures on the resurrection are flooding to me, and I'm going, I haven't even included that teaching yet. And now I'm thinking, maybe I need to write a tenth lesson for this. <laughs> anyway. 1 Corinthians 15, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown natural, which is a misinterpretation. The Greek word is sukekos, which means soulish. A soulish body. It is sown a soulish body. It is raised a pneumaticos, or spiritual body. There is a natural or, or soulish body, and there is a spiritual body. Now, this is critical. This may be the most profound thing I ever uncovered studying this as I wrote these lessons. 
The resurrection grants us our permanent, final, incorruptible, and eternal body. As we've said, the one theologian, he said, the Bible is not contented with a bodiless eternity. We're not just spirit forever. We have a body for eternity at the resurrection. It will be, our body will be a glorified, power-filled body like the Lord's after his resurrection. According to the Greek in the above passage, our current body is an extension of our soul. This is what is brand new thinking for me. Our current body is an extension of our soul. It is, that's what the Greek says, sukikos, a soulish body. Now, the rest of the scriptures confirm that. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We know that when the soul is stressed, the body breaks down. The philosophers understood that our body was tremendously tied and networked to our soul. You can motivate yourself. When you think certain ways, your body activates. You can think certain ways and release chemicals. You can train yourself to think a certain way and lower your heart rate or raise your heart rate to release endorphins. You think about food, your mouth salivates. Your body is a soulish body tied directly to your mind, your will, and your emotions. And we get that. But I've never considered that before. But what it says next is what's tremendous. It's only equipped for use by the soul. Your body is not equipped for use by the spirit. In a sense, your body limits your spirit man. It's, it's contained. Unless you have an outer body experienced by the Holy Ghost, your spirit only goes where your body goes. And you can't go to heaven till this body is dead. But look at this. The resurrected body will be an extension of our born-again spirit. It will be a pneumaticos soma or a spiritual body. That's pretty cool. If you, some of you are like, yeah. It'll be a spiritual body designed for use by our spirit man. And that's why we'll be able to come and go to heaven and back again like the Lord Jesus did. The full implication of this is a mystery that will be revealed in the ages to come. But there's a glimmer there of the truth of it. Now, that I learned from a theologian who wrote that about 150 years ago. And here in the modern church age, we're just trying to figure out how to get butts in the seats with purple lights, smoke, and trendy worship leaders. The modern church is about as spiritual as a bag of peanuts. And peanuts are a lot more useful than the modern church. 1 Corinthians 14, I got a lot more to blow through here. Oh, Lord, help me. Behold, I show you mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trump for the trump shall sound. The dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Our resurrected bodies will be incorruptible and immortal. Just as our spirit man was born again of incorruptible seed, our bodies will be resurrected of incorruptible cells. Because it's all a new birth. Our resurrected bodies will, will spring forth incorruptible. Incorruptible seed, God is born again, and our bodies sown in the natural bring forth an incorruptible harvest of an incorruptible body. I really think it's a cool, it's a, it's a pattern over and over and over again. Philippians 3.21, God will change or metaschematizo our vile body that it may be fashioned, symorphosos, likened to his glorious body, that it may be fashioned like his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to even subdue all things unto himself. God will change our bodies, fashioning, having the same form as another. He'll fashion them according to his own resurrected body. Here's another witness that we get a body like the Lord's. How? 
How is this going to happen? By the same power that he uses to, uses to subdue all things unto himself and by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. To me, it's not difficult. It's not hard to believe that the God that spoke the cosmos into existence can cause your body to be raised up and be changed into something totally different. John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what shall be, but we know this. When, we, when he shall appear, we're going to be just like him. Here's our third witness that says our glorified body is going to be just like Christ's glorified body. Why will we be just like him? For we shall fully see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. John stated very matter of fact, we know we shall be like him. Just by seeing the Lord as he is changes our being and nature and we shall be like him. We have at least three witnesses confirming that our glorified body will be like Christ. That's pretty exciting. So now concerning the Lord's glorified body. So we can kind of begin to build this picture of what our glorified body is going to be like. We can gain more insight into what our glorified bodies will be like considering the Lord's body after his resurrection. If it's going to be like him, let's see what he did after his resurrection. Point number one, he walked. I got scripture references for all this. Indicating his body could be submitted to the natural laws of physics and creation. So if he wanted to, he could submit to the laws of creation. Jesus' body had substance. He was touchable. He was embraceable. Remember, thrust your hand. Here, feel my scar. He even told uh, Mary Magdalene, touch me not. His body had substance. He wasn't a ghost. He even told him, I'm not a ghost. Hath a ghost flesh and bone? He was indicating this is the resurrection. This is the glorified body. I have been raised from the dead. He ate food, which is very peculiar. Because the next question should be, what happens after the food? Or does his body just completely handle all of it? He ate food. He cooked fish on the seashore, which also implies he probably either bought it or he caught it. He had bones and flesh. He was not instantly recognizable on at least two occasions by those that knew him the most. So I don't really know what that means, except maybe you guys are going to all look better. But he had to reveal himself both to Peter on the seashore and to the guys on the road to Emmaus. He was able to appear and disappear, indicating his body was not limited to the laws of creation. Many times he would just appear, and there he was. So the nature of the resurrection, according to what the scriptures teach us, there is no marriage in the resurrection. So if I was single and I wanted to enjoy the privileges of marriage, I would get my life straightened up and I would be talking to God every day about that spouse because this is the only time in eternity you get to enjoy marriage and the wondrous thing that God has made it to be. Now, some are called to be a eunuch and never be married, but even Jesus said, not everybody can handle what I'm about to tell you. But for those who can hear it, let him receive it. Jesus said very clearly, quoted in three of the Gospels, you don't marry in the resurrection and you don't have children. You're like the angels. What does that mean? It means you're either serving God or worshiping him, coming back and forth to the throne of God. We cannot die anymore is what Jesus said in the resurrection. We have an eternal body. We become like the angels, worshiping and ministering to the Lord and ever serving him. We become, Jesus said, sons of the resurrection. That's interesting, not just sons of God. Now are we the sons of God, but if we endure to the end, we become sons of the resurrection. 
Go sort it out. Again, these are things we don't really study because we're too busy having our best Tuesday ever. Writing another worship song that is so simple, basic, and carnal. Sounds like Britney Spears singing a love song to her next lover, except it's Jesus. The shallowness of the church never ceases to amaze me, and it gets shallower every day. It would seem we are given a new glorified body that we might more fully enjoy the goodness of God, spirit, soul, and body for the ages to come. It would seem to me that in the resurrection we're given a glorified body that we might more fully experience everything God has, all of his goodness, spirit, and soul, and body. And also we might add because God, it pleases him to do it so. The two resurrections, boy, I'm doing good for five and a half pages. We're almost done. Not everyone has eternal life, but everyone does have an eternal existence. All will be raised, but not all at the same time. The just will be resurrected to eternal life, and the wicked will be resurrected to eternal condemnation or damnation or suffering. Daniel 12, 2, and many of them that slept... That, uh, that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That was the prophecy about the coming resurrections and that they would in fact be two. Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So Jesus teaches on top of Daniel, there's two resurrections, but here he does not teach there's a thousand year gap. That's revealed in the revelation because the revelation of God is progressive. The closer we get to it, the more clearly we can see it. Think about this. I remember studying this in physics. I don't remember what it's called. Some of you might. They talk, the classic physics thing you have to solve in like your entry level physics is, is if you have a car with two taillights how far away do you, and it's two meters apart, so let's say your taillights are six meters apart, at what distance does that car have to get away from you until the two lights become one? And then all you see is one taillight because they're so close you cannot perceive a distance. Jesus Christ prophesying 2,000 years ago said one resurrection, but now as we're getting closer and closer to it, as John got caught up in the revelation, he could see history right there. He could see the 1,000-year time gap. So much of prophecy is that way because you're seeing it so far ahead, it's just one event to you. But as you get closer to it, you see that it actually has a time sequence to it. Same thing with the resurrection of the dead because it is, after all, Jesus who revealed to John the others did not awake for a thousand years. The others didn't live for a thousand years. So there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. Acts 24, 15. And we have hope toward God, Paul teaching now, which they themselves also allow that there be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Here's Paul, our third witness, building on the teaching of Jesus and Daniel the prophet, that there are two resurrections, one for righteous, one for wicked. It is clear there are two types one to life, one to damnation. The second resurrection will occur at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Revelations 5, 6, and A. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And what it seems to be is that when Satan is unleashed and brought up out of hell, all the wicked dead are puked up and given a body. And it seems as like there's one last revolt against God. And it lasts all of half a verse in the Revelation. And then it's all cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible calls the second death. He also told the church age, blessed are those who have no part of the second death. Because you don't get out of that. 
The resurrection of damnation is reserved only for the unjust and defined by shame and everlasting contempt. It must produce a body for the wicked dead, just as the resurrection of life produces a body for the righteous dead. For how else do the dead live again? And that's what Jesus says, or John says, the rest lived not again. Well, they're alive in hell until this moment. How else do they live again? They live through a resurrected body. Now, that's what's a little trippy for us. We've never stopped to consider that even the wicked get an eternal body, but it's not a glorified one. It's a damned one. It appears they are given another body, an eternal body, in order to more fully suffer eternal damnation, spirit, soul, and body. For the Bible is not contented with a bodiless eternity. It is my judgment, my doctrine as of this morning, it's subject to change if I can find a theologian who's taught on this, that the whole reason the wicked dead are given an eternal body so they can more fully suffer for eternity. Makes you want to walk a little closer to Jesus and be a partaker of the first resurrection upon which the second death has no power. But it ought to also encourage you to pray more fervently for any of your loved ones who are marching into hell and will spend forever apart from God and you'll never see them again. And this last section is just a bonus section. We're not going to cover it, but it's a timeline of the resurrections as fully hashed out from Scripture. Uh, the Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, resurrection of the church at the rapture, resurrection of the two witnesses, resurrection of the tribulation saints, and the resurrection of the unrighteous. <sighs> and as I finish this, I realize I probably will need to write a fourth lesson on the resurrection of the dead, or what I will probably really do is roll all this over and have a whole curriculum just on the resurrection of the dead, separate from this massive teaching we're doing on death. Amen. Hopefully that encourages you. I'm excited. A body better than this one. Some of you can't wait to die. You're looking forward to your upgrade. I would encourage you, though, one of the things I did not get to cover is the, the fact that Corinthians implies not all resurrections are the same. He says they're like the stars and they all have a different glory. This is another proof of evidence or proof of, of um, judgment that at the resurrection, some of us will shine brighter than others because of how we serve Jesus now. Because of how I, I even believe how we took care of our bodies now. Don't forget your body is a stewardship and you will be judged by God for how you took care of his body. Your body is not your own. You've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God, glorify God, glorify God in your body, which is his, which he's purchased himself. So take care of your body and there may be a reward in the glorified body or treat your body like a trailer on the edge of Possum Holler without his septic line and see what your resurrection looks like. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear. The, res the glory of all stars is different. So is the resurrection. Some are bright. Some are dim. Some just twinkle, twinkle. That ought to encourage you to get into some self-control and take care of your body and get out of sin. Amen.